Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton and we're back again to talk about the pandemic uh, and the lockdown and the aftermath and, and what's ahead for this country and this world because of the uh, because of the virus. And I brought in somebody who I think is exceptionally well suited to talk about this, Phil Kirpin, who's uh, general editor of the Committee to Unleash Prosperity and their COVID expert. And if you're not following it, uh, his daily uh, emails on uh, the status of the COVID and lockdown and what, what's happening there are just an invaluable resource. Uh, Phil's also president of American Commitment, and where I got to know him, and before that he worked for Americans for Prosperity. And anyway, Phil, welcome. Great to be with you, Bill. So uh, the lockdowns, good idea? Catastrophically bad idea. And I think that it's becoming increasingly clear that rather than this difficult trade-off that we had to weigh between freedom and economic prosperity on the one hand and containing a virus on the other, it, it was no trade-off at all. In fact, uh, the lockdowns had essentially no effect on the course of the virus, uh, but added all of the additional economic and social deprivation and hardship on top of what the virus caused. And to me, the best proof that lockdowns didn't work, uh, had no appreciable effect on the virus, is that uh, about 10 days ago now, California passed Florida on total cumulative per capita COVID cases. Per capita, not per based capita. on population. Per capita. Per capita. Okay. Uh, and that's with nine months of lockdowns of varying degrees of severity in California and, and yeah. Florida being wide open since September. So uh, the lockdowns haven't worked. We're beginning to reopen a little bit, but yet we're not seeing any real rush to the uh, rush to the exits on this thing. Where, where are we in terms of politicians deciding maybe it's safe to go out? Well, the winter wave is subsiding pretty rapidly. Uh, right now, as we speak, it's down about 40%, 45% from the early January peak nationally. And uh, hospitals, hospitalizations have come down about 25%. And so we're now in a pretty, pretty steep decline. Now, in previous waves, we also had declines. And so this doesn't mean this will be the end and we won't have another one. But uh, the difference now is every region of the country is declining at the same time, which we have mm -hmm. not seen before. And so I am cautiously optimistic that this is sort of the true end of season, and uh, we may uh, be past this, you know, until perhaps it seasonally recurs a year from now. And, and you know, if we have sufficient vaccination before that, uh, we may never have uh, another epidemic-type outbreak. It may just be sort of a normal virus going well, forward. Well, well, the pessimists are saying, well, well, wait a second, that was the last version of this. We've now got the South African version, and there's some other new version which is supposed to be coming in. And yet those numbers are not all that scary either, are they? Well, you know, the two countries that have the variants that we're supposed to be afraid of, that are supposed to justify ongoing restrictions, uh, are in even steeper decline than the U.S. is. Uh, cases in South Africa are down about 80% from their peak. And so if that's the variant we're supposed to be scared of, I'm not quite sure why. Uh, United Kingdom is also very steeply down. And there's now evidence, there are samples that have been sequenced that show that the U.K. variant has been in the United States since at least early November. Mm -hmm. And so to the extent that maybe that was something to be concerned about, it, it's 
already happened here. I, I don't think that's something in the future. So how serious was this anyway? I mean, we this all started, what, end of 2019, and it, it sort of came out of China. I'm not sure exactly where it, you know, uh, when it came here, but we had this model in the UK, the uh, the uh, uh, Imperial, Imperial College. College model, which predicted something like three or four million deaths within the next six months or something like that. How wrong was that model? Uh, it was, you know, in terms of the damage that it inflicted, it was the worst model in the history of models, which is pretty pretty impressive because models are pretty bad in general. <laughs> uh, you know, the guy who designed that uh, is named Neil Ferguson. He's the head of the epidemiology department at Imperial College, formerly a physicist. And uh, Neil Ferguson was actually forced to resign uh, as a UK government advisor because after testing positive for the coronavirus, he broke quarantine to have a liaison with his married girlfriend, uh, which to me indicates that he didn't believe his own model. So he because was, if he, he believed it, I don't think he would have endangered. So it's he uh, was he was the Gavin Newsom of scientists. <laughs> you might say that. Yeah. I mean, we've had. Yeah. It's incredible how many hypocrites we've had. Almost every lockdown artist has violated their own order at some point. Well, you and I have talked about economics and, the, you know, it seems like the, the model for this virus is almost it, it's very similar to the model that we look at when we try to predict macroeconomic behavior and that almost all the models miss it. You look at the Federal Reserve models and what have they predicted? How many of the last 99 recessions have they predicted? I think zero. I mean, it's, it's, it, they, they sort of don't work, and it's because they don't take into account how people react to uh, exactly. things. People take care of themselves. Exactly. That's why all of these models were so silly, because they made the assumption that absent government intervention, yeah. the disease would just continue to increase until everyone had it. And, of course, that's not how people behave. People hear, there's, oh, there's a bad virus going around. They change their behavior. They start taking precautions. They try to avoid it because they don't want to get it, not because government told them to. And so uh, this idea that you need heavy-handed government mandates or else it just continues to increase forever uh, was a ridiculous assumption that was behind all these models. And of course, uh, we have a control group for this in that uh, he, they ran the same model for Sweden and they said there would be 80,000 deaths and there have been 10,000. Uh, and they never adopted any of those measures. And so that shows you how far off they were. Uh, yeah, I was just reading about this. So Sweden had 10,000 deaths out of, I mean, what was, I think that's about, what did they do? They no lockdown, no masks, no, no lockdown, no masks, no school closures. Uh, they basically gave public health advice, the traditional model in the West. They said, you know, try to limit your contacts, try to keep this. They, they, they advised, they didn't mandate or order anything. So what they did was they just took precautions. They, 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 they protected the elder people. They did a poor job of that, actually. Oh, they they did? very high nursing home deaths early on, which is actually probably, you know, the first 5,000 deaths in Sweden, 80% of them were in the nursing homes. And uh, that was a failure in almost every country. Nobody really did a good job of that. And, of course, it's hard to keep people who are medically frail alive. I mean, they're, they're going to die of something. Well, that, the, so that's a big well, challenge. There's a lot of ways to take that because, uh, take this conversation because, I mean, that's the big thing, the comorbidity and uh, what is it like? The average age of death now, is, or median age of death is like 79, 80? 78, I think, in the U.S. It's 78. And like, what, 90% of those people have a comorbidity? They had something else that was... 94% uh... Uh, of the death certificates have at least one other thing listed. But that, that's a little bit deceptive because, you know, a doctor who's you know, being 
a doctor is doing a good job filling out a death certificate is probably not going to just list COVID-19. Even if it's a classic COVID-19 pneumonia death, they're probably also going to have pneumonia or they can have acute respiratory distress syndrome. So a lot of people made a big deal of the fact that the CDC said only 6% of the death certificates listed COVID by itself. That doesn't mean that only 6% of the deaths were where COVID mm-hmm. was the was the principal cause of death. Uh, it just means those are the doctors who didn't bother to write anything else. But what's really interesting to me is only about 45% of the death certificates uh, with COVID have pneumonia listed, which is being consistent. It's been 45% from the beginning consistently. And if you actually use the World Health Organization definition of a COVID-19 death, pneumonia has to be present. And so then the question is, was it present but not written on the death certificate in yeah. you know the other 55% or was it just someone incidentally tested positive, died of something unrelated? And so I think there's going to be a lot of scholarship uh, for years trying to sort this out when people actually get access to the death certificates and the medical records. Um, but you know, my, my best guess would be something on the order of half of the reported deaths are you know genuinely caused by COVID-19. So Maybe this, half to two-thirds, so but it's, the, not, it's not 6%. It's not 100% but it's probably somewhere around the half. Yeah, I was doing the 6% times 400,000, saying 24,000 people. So that's not the right math. No. It could have, been, could have been something. So the 400,000 number, I don't want to be um, too tough about this, but we have, there's this concept of excess deaths every year where some people die that are above some norm number. And I'm not sure I really quite understand that. But we have, on average, what, 250,000 excess deaths from the flu or from various uh, seasonal uh, viruses? Is that? Well, it's tricky because the, the normal seasonal respiratory illnesses are in the baseline. So they're not excess. Okay. Uh, when you have a bad year, when you have a severe flu outbreak like we had in 1718, like we had with the swine flu in 09, then you do get excess. That's, you know, you, you get more than the usual. Uh, and so in a, the, the, typically in a pandemic, the way that you would get a, a, a meaningful number of the deaths that were caused by the pandemic is you, look, you just look at all-cause deaths and you look for that excess. Uh, but that's going to be really hard to do this time because we caused so many additional deaths with our policy responses. Uh, and so you have to somehow, you have to tease out, you know, which excess deaths were lockdown deaths versus which were uh, COVID deaths. And I think the lockdown deaths, particularly sort of under age 45, are probably going to be two to one at least, or three to one. So what is it? That's alcohol, that's drugs, that's suicide, that's uh, not getting treated for something that they should have gotten treated for. Is that all in that category? Yeah, it's all of the above. It's, uh, it's the, the suicides and the drug overdoses, sort of the deaths of despair, uh, but it's also the, uh, the heart attack and stroke that is untreated, and we've had a lot of that. People just, you know, they're scared to go to the emergency room or they, they, don't, you know, they don't want to or they think. You know, the really tragic thing was that when, early on, when there's all these all these sort of hyped news stories about how the hospitals were full that weren't true in almost anywhere, uh, people thought they didn't have room for them at the hospital because yeah. they wouldn't go when they actually should have. And so uh, it's it's failure to get medical care. It's the deaths of despair. And then the, the surprising one to me, because everyone said the opposite would happen, vehicle fatality deaths are actually up, even though people are not commuting. So I'm not quite sure why that's the well, case, I, but it's I, interesting. You know, my... One of my producers, Marine, 
just called this morning uh, from the car shaken because she's commuting in on 66. The driving has gotten, I don't know, people are acting well, like there's levels, no tomorrow. Stress levels are so high, I think that's why. But it is, it is surprising because, you know, one of the things that was predicted early on was, oh, we'll save so many lives from people not commuting. Uh, and in yeah. fact, the vehicle fatality deaths are up, not down. That's a stunning. Is, 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 you put a number on the on these other. Uh, Jim McGresty was on. You know him. He does just just facts. He's a terrific uh, analyst about it, things like this. And he early on, March April, he calculated the number of excess deaths because of the lockdowns would exceed the uh, the the uh, deaths caused by the pandemic or the virus. By a factor of ten times, twenty times. But long term, I think that's almost certainly true. In terms of measured in terms of person year. Yeah, like, long, long yeah. term, the school closures by themselves yeah. are going to be more costly in terms of life years lost than the disease by far. Remember, the difference in life expectancy between a high school graduate and a high school dropout is about five years in this country, and we, you know we've got you know, millions of kids that are you know we we've got some school systems where 30 40% of kids have never logged on to the online what does that do for their prospects going forward educationally and then you know even sort of uh, independent of that sort of binary of do you drop out or graduate, there's a strong connection, there's a strong linear connection between how much education you have and not just your income, but your life expectancy. Uh, you're watching The Bill Walton Show. I'm here with uh, Phil Kirpin, and we're talking about the, uh, the tremendous cost, human cost, social cost, economic cost, that the lockdowns cause, which, which Phil believes, and I think he's right, will, will be lasting for years and years and years. Uh, that's stunning. So we could be living with the consequences now of this one year for 10, 20, 30, 40 years in terms of shortened lives and, and, and less, uh, less, pro you know, less happiness among the people that, that, yeah. that Well, the that big challenge is going to be how we dig out of that hole. And, you know, certainly we've got, you know, so many people uh, forewent cancer screenings, which means we're finding a lot of cancers at much later stages than we otherwise would have. Uh, we've got a big backlog of, of, of medical procedures from all the times that hospitals were restricted and closed. And so we're digging out of that hole also. Now, one of the benefits we have in the U.S. is that we do have much greater health system capacity and the ability to catch up than a lot of other places. I mm -hmm. think in the U.K., some of their waiting lists now are like 10 years for yeah. procedures that were canceled during the pandemic. Yeah. So the, it's, uh, this disproportionately hurt poor people. Oh, no question about that. No question about that. Uh, you know, I think the the strongest proponents of lockdown are the people who are the least affected by it. Oh, great. I can work from home now. I can take my meetings on Zoom. I can have everything I need delivered to me by somebody who's going to go, you know, I can log on to an app and someone will deliver my groceries or deliver anything else I want and say, and, and you've got, you've got these people who are, you know, incredibly unaffected by it. I mean, one of the things that I'm really struck by living in Washington, D.C. is, you know, you've got these extremely adamant lockdown proponents uh, in Northwest D.C., basically rich white liberals. Well, in Montgomery County, Same Maryland. Thing. Yeah. Same thing across the line in Montgomery County. People's Republic and, of... And okay, they're, they're having... Every, they're not, you know, they're so self-impressed. Look, I'm so wonderful. I never leave my house. And it's like, well, okay, but have you reduced the risk or have you just transferred it to the person you're paying to go do all this stuff for you, to the person who's delivering it to you? And then you look at the disease burden in these places and it's overwhelmingly among the minorities. So you're essentially transferring the burden of COVID from yourself to someone else who's sort of, uh, you know, waiting on you, if you will, 
and then you congratulate yourself for that. I, I find it ridiculous. Well, in California, I think the numbers, 50% of the people had uh, COVID, the COVID deaths are, are among the Hispanic population. So this, by definition, I guess that would be the poor part of the population. The, but you're, I, I can't think about the D.C. and Montgomery County without thinking about the politics. This, 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 this virus, this pandemic, this, this has been incredibly political from the get-go. The best predictor of lockdown severity in the United States is political party. It's not the number of cases, it's not the number of deaths, it's the political party. Uh, Democrat jurisdictions have been far more stringent than Republican jurisdictions, and uh, that's been the best predictor. And even internationally, and there have been studies that have shown this, even internationally, uh, the best predictor of lockdown policies on a national basis is what the countries near you are doing. And it has very little to do with the disease burden, but you know the lockdowns themselves have sort of been contagious. And we have a distorted incentive, particularly the way our media system is. You know, if you don't lock down, if you're Christy Noem or Ron DeSantis and you don't lock down, the whole way up the disease curve, you get blamed for every single death. You get blamed. You didn't do what you could have done. Yeah. You get attacked constantly nonstop. You get national negative coverage. Yeah. And the whole way down the disease curve, you get zero coverage. They don't even mention that it ended. You know, I think there's some people that don't live in Florida, that don't know the summer wave ended. Because it went up, and they, everything was reported, and when it was going down, it was completely ignored. So you get no, you know, they don't say, hey, wait a second, it went down all the same as the other states, even though he didn't adopt any of these things. Instead, they attack you nonstop on the way up. They ignore it on the way down. And in the states that do have restrictions, that are locking things down, that are closing restaurants, all this kind of stuff, they have the same disease curve, basically. Uh, but they get praised. And on the way down in those places, and New York, of course, was the most famous example of this, on the way down the curve, they get nonstop positive coverage that attributes <laughs> the curve declining to the policy interventions, even though the curve declines exactly the same in places that don't adopt those policy interventions. Okay, we've got to talk about Andrew Cuomo. What a, what a, what a piece of work he is. I mean, he's out telling us how hard he's working, and yet he's got that whole nursing home issue. What, what is, what, what's your... Have you dug into that? What's true? Yeah, uh, followed this very, very closely because uh, in the early months of the pandemic, we were running, you know, something like 60% of all the deaths were in the nursing homes. And that's now count, come down to about 40% as it spread more widely everywhere else. Uh, but it, the, the early story in both Europe and the U.S., it was overwhelmingly in the nursing homes. And we should have known this, particularly in New York, because it had happened in Italy. It had happened in France. We knew that that was where you had the medically vulnerable people. Remember, there's an extremely steep age gradient on this virus. Uh, under age 20, it's less dangerous than the flu, 99.997% survival under age 20. 20 to 50, it's 99.98% survival. 50 to 70, it's 995 Above age 70, though, it's only about 94, 95% survival. So, you know, about 5%, six, 5 to 6% of the people above age 70 who get this uh, die with it, which is a very high number. And uh, it's not everyone over 70 who's at risk. It's people who are medically frail, and it's people who are in nursing homes uh, far more than people who are independent living who have sort of a risk profile more similar to a younger category. So the focus should have been, what is everything you can do to protect the nursing homes? And instead... You had some of these governors, Cuomo, Murphy in New Jersey, uh, Wolf in Pennsylvania, that actually mandated 
that nursing homes accept infectious patients even if they didn't have infection control in place. Uh, and in New York, over 5,000 highly infectious patients were pushed out of the hospitals back into the nursing homes uh, you know, while they were still highly infectious. And that almost certainly led to a lot of the deaths in New York. And, and New York is the only state that doesn't report the number of nursing home residents who died with COVID. They only report the number that died physically on the premises of the nursing home, which is a fraction and, and, of the total. And didn't they just announce that they're never going to report it? I think they uh, came they're out. trying. They're trying. They actually just <laughs> lost the lawsuit. Our friends, at the, uh, <laughs> our friends at the uh, Manhattan Institute just won a FOIA lawsuit. Okay. And so the Go governor now, there's now a court order. He's supposed to reveal the number. We'll see if he defies the court order. But yeah, uh, he had said for months, it's too, it's too difficult to do this calculation, by the way, that every single other state has done more or less daily or at least weekly. He says, it's just impossible. We can't do it. He had said for months, he said, we can't do it until uh, November. So we're like always waiting until after the election. Then the election comes and goes, he says, no, actually, we can't do it at all. So well, he's I, obviously more of a theater major than a math major. <laughs> Ever since well, he, he won, won an Emmy award. for his great daily performances. I mean. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's it, it's really remarkable because the other, the New York uh, had far far more deaths than they should have because of their policy mistakes, uh, seeding it into the nursing homes. And yet, so far, it doesn't seem to be paying a political price. No, no political price. Instead, he was the hero and praised all the way down. You know, I mean. It's sort of the opposite. The If you don't lock down, you get attacked on the way up the disease curve. If you do lock well, down, you're a hero on the way down. And but, but New York City, okay, New York City, which has probably been around the herd immunity threshold since May or June, they've had almost no mortality in the winter wave uh, because they had so much early on. It had already spread so widely in their population. They've nonetheless been on lockdown this whole time. I mean, they're destroying all the restaurants well, in the city. The they're they're closed. Businesses are leaving. It's, yeah. uh, it's incredible what they're doing to that city. Um, and they're doing it after the disease has already been through almost, you know, substantially so, all of the population. Okay, so it's political. It's a blue state phenomenon, lockdowns. The red states, it didn't. Christy Nomes, she's South Dakota. Yeah. Uh, done a fabulous job. DeSantis in Florida took enormous heat. That's working out great. Yet we've got people still in, in, in a denial mode about this. And it says, don't believe what we're, what, you know, let, let, March, April, we didn't know anything. It's now a year later, and we know a lot. And yet they're still acting like these things we know aren't true, and they're still keeping us locked down. How do, how do we ever, how do people ever regain trust in government if we ever had it? Because it's, uh, you know, I, I don't, you know, Montgomery County, uh, they come out with these statements, and you just think, well, that you know, they're not, they're not, they're not doing it for us; they're doing it for them. Well, Montgomery County, you know, I assumed that they must have political motives. I think they're just stupid. I mean, I think they <laughs> honestly, I think they don't. I, I think they think what they're doing. I mean, I, I, I'll tell you because when they put out that order to try to shut down all the private schools, I did a uh, MPIA, which is like the state version of FOIA to try to figure out what, I thought it was probably like the teachers union told them to do it. or And then I got these emails back and it was just really dumb stuff about how they were just scared and didn't understand that, you know, it was so, well, I, I don't I'm, know. I'm, it's always hard to tell what's incompetence I'm, and stupidity I'm going to get myself in a lot of trouble, but I have to do it. You know, I think about, you know, I'm a free market guy. I believe you ought to put your talent out in the marketplace and see how well you can do. And, you know, I've done okay. I've done some things well, some other things. Not, but I wanted to get out there and try things. And yet I think about the people who, my age, who might have gone to work in, say, state government. 
and I think about their ability to think about risk and think about security and their, the kind of decisions they make, that you're not exactly going to get the best and brightest uh, staffing the health department of most, uh, of most state governments, state municipal governments. Well, I even think the best and brightest in epidemiology are not the best and brightest. I mean, I think that as a field, it's been extremely unimpressive. And I, you know, it's when you elevate a field that's a relative backwater to sort of being in charge of the world and in charge of everyone's life, you get a lot of problems. But, so in terms of big mistakes, the big mistake we made was put the crisis management in charge of immunologists. So that leads me to one of the questions I had here. Who is Dr. Who is Dr. Anthony Fauci really? I mean, why? What, uh, he's a career. Why? He's a career bureaucrat. I mean, he's one of the all-time. He's one of the all-time great Washington power players. When you consider that he's navigated his way to surviving. I mean, I don't know six, seven presidential. I mean, he's been here forever. I, I, and uh, you know, he is uh, highly adaptable. Obviously, in in fact, you know, just during COVID in the last year, I think he's been on both sides of literally every significant question. He said, don't mask, mask, wear goggles, double mask. Uh, he said, there's no asymptomatic spread. There's, it's principally asymptomatically spread. He's, uh, been, he said the herd immunity threshold is about 67%, which is the classical math for an r naught value of three. And then he said, actually, I think it's 85%. And I just didn't want to tell you earlier because you wouldn't have liked it. I mean, so he's been, I mean, it, it's remarkable. What's remarkable to me is he's been, He's flip-flopped on literally every issue you could even think of within the last year, and yet he's treated as this sage. And he's done it in the absence of new evidence, in the absence of new science. Uh, and I, I've just been baffled at the extent to which the man is revered. What, what is he so well-known for, leading uh, efforts against AIDS in the 80s? Well, he was wrong on everything on that, too. He said, Bill, he said, he originally said AIDS is spread through household contacts, okay? That was obviously extraordinarily wrong. He said, yeah, obviously hadn't been in bars yeah, in Greenwich right, Village. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right. Yeah, then, then, he, then he said that uh, there was going to be a huge, huge heterosexual AIDS epidemic, yeah. which never happened. And he's been, then he promised an AIDS vaccine, I don't know, every two or three years for 20 years, 30 years, we never had one. I mean, it's, uh, it's incredible. You, you're watching the Bill Walton show, and I'm here talking with Phil Kirpin, and we're concluding that the last people you want to put in charge of a pandemic response is immunologists. And at the top of the list of who you don't want to put in charge, it's Dr. Anthony Fauci. Well, even within immunology, his field of specialty. You remember, he was told Senator Rand Paul, nobody believes that there's T-cell immunity. Yeah. Well, he said that less than a month after he was quoted in, a, in an article after the NIAID that he, that he runs ran a study that looked at T-cells. He said, well, the T-cells and the antibodies are a one-two punch. It's a, that's the key to... St a month after that quote was when he told Rand Paul, nobody, nobody would agree with you that T-cells serve an important function. I mean, he's, he's literally flipped and flopped on every single imaginal, imaginable aspect of this, including, by the way, schools, where he had another heated exchange with Rand Paul, who said all the schools should be open, children are not at risk, and they're not a significant source of spread. And Fauci said... No, we need to be scared about Kawasaki, which was a big fake scare, and a few other. And now he says, "Oh no, schools should be open." I guess in a democratic administration. Well, you know, if you if, if if you're just making me think, this this whole thing has been a bouncing ball of things that we're supposed to believe and not believe. The first thing, I think, the ventilators 
were all the rage, and we had to, we, we had to, and then we had to lock down because the hospitals were going to be flooded, and the lockdown was supposed to last two weeks, and that was all the news. And then, and then uh, further on, it was testing. Everybody had to be tested, and in particular, well, let me ask you the question: ventilators we now think were dangerous. Yeah. We think a lot of the deaths were caused by the ventilators, not prevented. True. Yeah. Well, what happened was. Uh, they were putting people on ventilators who really didn't need to be ventilated. And yeah. this was the protocol in, in New York City in particular. They were really worried about themselves, about their the healthcare workers, and they thought that uh, you know, because the ventilator is a closed system, you just have a one-time aerosol risk, but once the tube is in, they're not breathing out into the room. And so they thought that they could essentially protect the healthcare workers by being very aggressive with the early ventilating and uh, the results were really bad. I mean, you know, something like 90% of those people died. Yeah, yeah. And it's become very clear that if you avoid ventilators as long as possible, obviously we still use them. If somebody can't breathe, you're going to put them on a ventilator. It's not like you don't use it at all. But uh, the protocol now, which has been much more successful, is to do everything possible to avoid ventilation, to do gentler forms of oxygen support. So they put them on a BiPAP or a CPAP or they put them on... You know, they, they, they or a high-flow nasal cannula. Basically, they try to get oxygen into you without ventilating you mm -hmm. is what they're and doing now. And the other thing is they're proning people. They're putting them on their bellies, uh, which get, lets more air get into the lungs, and they're finding that So we got smart lot. about how to deal yeah. with it. And, you know, what about testing? I don't hear much about testing anymore. It seems like that's, that's we've moved from testing into vaccines, and I want to talk about vaccines, but it was, is there... Do, do, do tests matter? I mean, are we are we supposed to care whether we've been tested or not tested? I guess I've been tested three or four times, and you know they stick the thing up your nose and didn't have it. But I don't know whether that is even accurate. Well, most most political jurisdictions in the United States now use a uh, measure, a metric called the uh, positivity percentage, which is the percentage of tests that are taken. Uh, they come back positive in their gating criteria for what's allowed to occur and be open and so forth. So I would like to thank you for testing and testing negative because we need people who are not sick to take the test so that we can have a low positivity percentage so they can release us from these various restrictions. Uh, you know, there have been, been a few studies now, including a pretty big one I think was in Nature. I might be wrong on which journal it was in, uh, that found that the scale of testing that you do has no relationship uh, with the disease burden. And yeah, so okay. it hasn't worked the way it was suggested to, that it would work. Uh, you know, the, um, you know, if you feel sick, you probably should avoid contact with other people so that you don't get them sick. And, well, that's you know, what the, people do when they take care of themselves. Right. If you're feeling sick, you stay home. And if you know there's a pandemic Correct. out there, you're more, and frankly, more, more, even more likely to Asymptomatic spread exists, but it is a fraction of the disease spread. It's very small. Uh, there was a big meta-study that was in the Journal of the American Medical Association on yeah. household contact. Yeah, I heard it was none. But it's it's not. It's not. It's not zero. But I, the the study that was in the Journal of the American Medical Association found an 18% attack rate for symptomatic people. So if you're symptomatic, 18% of the people in your household will catch it from you. Mm -hmm. For asymptomatic, they found 0.7%. So 0.7. Yeah. So okay. Yeah. So it's, you're 25 times less contagious than someone right. who's symptomatic. Uh, 
it's not zero, but it's close enough to zero that if people were really careful about not being around other people when they experienced symptoms, it would stop the vast majority of the disease spread. Uh, and so, you know, if we were spending the trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars that we spent, the paid sick leave probably made sense. That was in there. Uh, but most of the things we did didn't make any sense at all. And, and by the way, the obsession with masks has probably been counterproductive. Uh, it's hard to discern any evidence in the data in either direction. It appears to basically have no effect. But it seems to me that if you tell people a mask will stop the spread of a virus, then they're going to say, oh, great, I can go out even if I don't feel great. I'll just put so the mask on. So it's more on. likely to lead to risky I, behavior if you think, think you're so. protected. I think so. I think so. And that's why the Nordic people. countries have avoided them, because they say, yeah. look, we don't want people to think that they don't have to isolate if they're sick or that they don't have to try to keep distance, you know, as long as they have a mask on. Well, Jay Richards was here, and he had COVID, and he had some pre-existing conditions, and he was nervous about it, so he checked himself in to one of the hospitals and went into their, their unit that treated this, and he went in, and everybody was there kind of looking like they're wearing hazmat suits, mm -hmm. all this stuff. And he had his little blue mask, and he said, why, why don't you wear these? And they said, well, well they don't work. Right. So, exactly. So if you get the medical professionals that don't think they work, why are the rest of us supposed to believe it? Now we're supposed to be wearing two or three masks. Right. Single masking, you know, is murder. I mean, I don't know if I see anyone with the single mask. It's uh, that's that's practically being uh, an anti-masker. You're now. making me so claustrophobic. Where I play tennis in an indoor facility and the local authorities say you've got to wear a mask playing tennis indoors when you're in a sizable place about two foot football fields and there are about 12 people. And it's... it's uh, That's a really bizarre one, actually. The, uh, the World Health Organization has this website, Mythbusters, okay? And one of their... Myth, M-Y-T-H? Yeah, M-Y-T-H, Myth, Mythbusters. Okay. So you type in World Health Organization, Mythbusters, and you can find this. And one of the myths they bust is that you can wear a mask while exercising. And they say, no, this is a myth. They say, you should never wear a mask while exercising because... It can limit oxygen intake, and because it gets covered in sweat, and once it's covered in sweat, it has no filtration at all, but it encourages bacterial growth. And so the World Health Organization specifically says, uh, do not wear a mask while exercising. They say, instead, keep a one-meter distance is well, the intervention. Well, if you're playing tennis, I think your one-meter distance is taken care of. So I, I think it's very strange. I, that, I find it very well, odd. So, so the, this is really good news. Now that Biden's rejoined the World Health Organization, <laughs> right, right, I can now go to my you local say, well, look guy at the and myth I can buster, say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> "Look, let's look at MythBusters and and start lobbying." But the uh, the uh, you you raised something here. That we, so we've got masks, we've got, and then we've got the six six foot six foot rule. I've heard stories about where that came from. What what's your my understanding, uh, and we have... So you just said one meter. That's, that's, that's the 39 inter, That's inches. the international... Uh, that's the official World Health Organization distance standard is one meter. Uh, there, there are a handful of countries uh, that doubled it, and six feet is about double. And one of the other countries that doubled it was the United Kingdom, and they've since reverted to, to one meter. But when they were at two meters, which was for a long time, uh, one of the government advisors, a scientist named Rupert Dingwall, who was in the room when they formulated the two-meter standard in the United Kingdom, said that uh, literally what they did is they took the 
World Health Organization standard, and they doubled it because they said you know, people may not know what one meter is. So why don't we double it? And uh, you know, then and they knew be, it, and, they knew, and they knew what six feet was. Well, I think the theory was I think the theory was if you tell people to stay six feet apart, then maybe they're more likely to be three feet apart. And wow. so it was not it was not a scientifically based decision. And what we've learned about the mode of transmission with this virus is the major spread events are almost certainly aerosol spread, which is to say uh, they're airborne. Uh, they are sus It's suspended in the air. It circulates with the airflow in the room. And so it doesn't matter if it's three feet or six feet or 10 feet or 15 feet. If you're present in a room that has aerosols that are at a sufficient concentration, then you can catch it. Now, the good news I've is... I've also heard you can be infected through your eyes with aerosols. True. You, well, maybe. Yeah, okay, that's Fauci don't. said to wear goggles, but I've noticed <laughs> he never did, wears them himself. So I'd say that one's interesting. Uh, you know, the, the thing is that most people who get this virus do not produce aerosols. There's some subset that do, and we don't know how to identify them, unfortunately. Uh, so you've got this situation where, you know, the vast majority of people who get this virus infect zero or one people. Uh, you know, most people are not going around infecting tons of people. But then you have, you have some unknown subset of people uh, that do produce aerosols that uh, have the risk of these super spread type events. Uh, but all of these events where, you know, 100 people in a room all caught it or 50 or whatever it is, they all have something in common. Every single one of these events was, was a poorly ventilated space. We've mm. had zero confirmed super spread events that occurred outdoors. Zero. Uh, there's almost no outdoor transmission at all, even even one-to-one -one, uh, that's been documented. And they were in indoor spaces that were poorly ventilated. Yeah. And so, you know, if we were upgrading our ventilation for all our indoor spaces, which we've been doing, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, that should almost, that should substantially mitigate that risk more so than these heavy-handed government policies. You're watching the Bill Walton Show, and I'm here with Phil Kirpin, and we're talking about the, the six-foot rule and uh, the fact that uh, most of the spreader events happen in poorly ventilated places, and there's been a lot of steps to remedy that. Go and so maybe that, uh, maybe, maybe we could start gathering in groups of larger than 10 people. And, and, and then that happened to us. We had a I, Council for National Policy. We had a meeting where we had a, 250 people, and it was in a very nice, well-ventilated room. We kept spaced out. We had two meetings, one in August and another in November, and, and we didn't get a single uh, single case come out of that. I mean, nobody caught anything. And so... Well, someone would have to have it, and they'd have to be. So, you well, know, I, I think so. we're, we're, we're overly fearful. But, you know, but, um, the, but the thing that strikes me that just that how some little decision has enormous consequences because this idea of doubling it from one meter, 39 inches to six feet... If you think about social distancing in a restaurant or a sports event or the theater or things like that, if you get a three-foot rule, you can have a reasonable-sized crowd still there, and and people can get on with their with with their events. But when you get a six-foot rule, it's almost impossible to, to make that work. Yeah, I think that there was a, um, I think when the CDC put out the six-foot guidance, their assumption was that people would take the, if feasible language. And every place the CDC says six feet, it says six feet if feasible. Uh, and it would be sort of a guideline, six if you can do it, less if you can't. And you know the way our country is with lawyers and so forth. Every, that got interpreted as an absolute hard rule. And so you've got school systems, for instance, 
that have said, oh, well, we need to sit the kids at home half the time because otherwise we can't fit enough desks because we have the six feet. That, that's not what six feet, if feasible, means. It's not feasible to sit the kids at home half the time, and yet uh, that's how that's been interpreted. And so I think it's a situation where, and, and by the way, the CDC guidance on all of this stuff didn't even go through OMB review. Uh, it's, it wasn't considered rulemaking, wasn't considered by, you know, I actually talked to some of the people in the White House at the time, because I said, you know, this, because when they first put out all this guidance for schools, for business, all this stuff, I said, this is totally unworkable. These, these, you're not going to be able to have normal operations. This is going to be totally hamstring everything. I said, you know, can you force this to be revised, to be made more reasonable through the review process? And I talked to someone at OMB at the time, and he said, oh, no, we, we're not reviewing that. It's not binding. It's just, you know, it's just their opinion. It doesn't go through any review. Man. But people treat it like the gospel, like uh, like like the the ironclad law that must be followed. So let's get into the other gospel, the gospel about vaccines. And I guess my related question is: Are we ever going to get teachers to go back to school? Because now people are saying that teachers can't. The union is saying teachers can't go back to school unless they've been vaccinated. Number one: Are vaccines really the answer? And then we'll get into schools after we figure out whether they work or not. Well, I think that um, I think the vaccine data has been pretty encouraging. Uh, and I think that re remember, this is a very it's a very deadly virus for people who are medically frail or who are, who are very old. And uh, if we can protect them either directly, if they can get a robust immune response to a vaccine, of course, some of them are too medically frail for that, but you can protect them indirectly if you can uh, you know, vaccinate everyone they come in contact with, the nursing home workers and so forth. Um, we could substantially reduce the mortality from this. That would be a great thing. I would be in favor of that. And so I think you know, having a good strategy to get, get the vaccine to people who are at high risk and to do it on in, in the basis of risk and start with people who are old and medically vulnerable is a very, very smart thing. Uh, we've already moved away from that dramatically in most places in this country. We've said we're going to use the vaccine essentially to, you know, lure people back into the workforce, especially the teachers and, and others. And, you know, that's, you know, if that's what it takes to bring them back, okay. But I find it a little bit bizarre that the same people who told us we had to be locked in our homes for months and months and months or else we wanted to kill grandma are now saying, hey, grandma can wait for a vaccine. <laughs> we got to give it to someone else who's, who's more important, you know, for whatever reason. And so it's, I, I do find it odd what the prioritization has been. Uh, but I'm pretty, you know, I think the mRNA technology uh, that the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines are built on is a really incredible technology because, uh, you know, assuming that it's safe and it appears to be so far and that it's effective, we're now going to have the ability to uh, pr essentially program a vaccine for a novel pathogen or even a bio biological warfare agent uh, almost instantly. And once you have the genetic sequence, you can program the protein that you want into the mRNA platform and you have a vaccine. And so it's a pretty incredible technology. The, uh, the implications of it could go really far beyond uh, you know, this specific uh, pandemic because if you can program the body to create essentially any protein that you want, I mean, think about the implications of that for all of the other diseases and conditions that we have. So I think this is a really, I think this is a really big breakthrough that has potentially you know, huge implications even beyond the pandemic. Have you taken the vaccine? I'm not, I have not, but I will yeah. when I'm eligible. Okay. 
Yeah. So no. Really. I'm not trying to skip the line though. What, 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 what about the anti-vaccine people? I mean, there are a lot of people worried about. You know, of course, the internet's filled with all sorts of. Uh, well, you know, I think that it's very important that it be a choice. Yeah. We we should never mandate or force anyone to inject something in their body they don't want to. And, you know, people have different risk profiles and they need to trade these things off. Even a very safe vaccine does have some risk of adverse events. Uh, we've recognized that for a long time. That's why we have a vaccine. Well, that's true for that, all the flu vaccines. And every, yeah, you know, right. But that's yeah. why we have a vaccine liability trust fund. Nobody would produce them if they were going to be sued into oblivion for every adverse event because they know every you, you know, there will be some. And so that's an inevitability. And I think, you know, if you're you know under age 20, and your survival rate with the actual virus is 99.997%, I, I don't see what the appeal of the vaccine would be because, you know, what is what are you weighing the vaccine-related risk against? If you're above age 70, I think it's a total no-brainer that you should want the vaccine. If you're in between, you know, you've got to sort of look at it and make that decision for yourself. And so I, I think that we don't do anyone any favors if we say, you know, there's no risk at all, it's 100% safe. You know, th there's no such thing as that in life. Uh, but I do think it's got a pretty good safety profile from what we've seen. And compared to the risk with the virus, if you're in a high-risk category, I think you know, the vaccine makes all the sense in the world. If you're not, it's a little yeah. bit tougher. Well, we've got a couple of minutes to wrap up. And I, I, the, the thing that strikes me in listening to you and all the other people I've talked with is about this is this has been sort of a death of common sense. I mean, we took leave of our senses a year ago when we said this is the worst thing that's ever going to happen. Started with the modeling out of the Imperial College, but I, it seems to me this the deep divide in the country of Trump versus the media elite. I mean, that that is that has driven a lot of the way this uh, this virus has played out and all the responses and all the lockdowns. And so this this toxic mix of of politics, hyper-partisan politics in this virus has produced just a catastrophic outcome. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the, the one thing I would add to that is um, there's sort of psychological path dependency, by which I mean, you know, once people have sacrificed for months and months and months for themselves and their children and their families, they never want to believe it was for nothing. They want to think they did some great thing, that they yeah. accomplished something. Yeah, and so, exactly. You know, I, I think a lot of people are incapable of recognizing yeah. that these measures didn't make a difference. They, they'll never, they'll never admit it to themselves. So when do we, when do we get out from under this? It's now February, 2021. What do, what are, what's the world going to look like? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm putting futurist in your resume here. What do we look like six months, 12 months from now? I think that when we get to the point where everyone who wants the vaccine can get it, we need to pivot back to normal. And it's not that there won't be anyone who still gets this virus, particularly it may recur, it may come back. You know, We've had so many successive waves. Uh, I think we're at a real end of season now, but I could be wrong. It could surprise us. It could uh, pop up again, uh, or it could recur seasonally and next winter. But I think that when you get to the point where you've done everything you can do, everyone who wants the vaccine has it, um, it becomes uh, everyone then has to recognize that it's just uh, a part of life to deal with rather than uh, a pretext on which you need to shut everything down. And so I think the, the key point where you really can't justify restrictions is when everyone who wants the vaccine can get it.
not when everyone's vaccinated. And if they, they try to make the standard, you know, some percentage of the population being vaccinated, that's going to be a problem because it'll drag the thing on. But the, the key point for people who believe in freedom and choice is if everyone who wants it has it, then anyone who chooses not to get it has made their own risk determination and uh, they're responsible uh, for the consequences and we don't need to put sort of a burden on the rest of society. Smart. Uh, We've been talking, I've been talking with Phil Kirpin, who is sort of a a generally brilliant editor of a committee to unleash prosperity and COVID expert and also president to the American Commitment. And we've been talking about COVID uh, and I think Phil has really helped me understand the issues, and I appreciate you being here, Phil. This is this is great. My pleasure. Um, will you come back and we can continue uh, with the next chapter? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. Phil, thank you. And thank you. Thanks for listening. See you soon. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.